Hey, it's me. If you like what you hear in these Chicago History Podcast episodes, please like, follow, and share this podcast with a friend. Also, please consider leaving a review as it really helps me get the word out and reach new fans. Your review may be read in a future episode. As always, thank you for listening to this podcast. The 100th anniversary of the most violent labor battle in the U.S. is June 22, 2022. This is the story of the Heron Coal Massacre of 1922. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. The following episode contains mature subject matter. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Heron, Illinois is a small town in Williamson County in southern Illinois, approximately 100 miles southeast of St. Louis and a short 15 miles northeast of Carbondale, Illinois. The 2020 census reflects a population of 12,352 with a median family income of $39,108. The town is predominantly white. 100 years ago in 1922, the population of Heron was about 1,300 less with 10,986 counted. Back then, it was estimated nearly 90% of the people who lived in Heron were coal miners or were in some way connected to the mining industry. Approximately one-third of the Heron population at the time was made up of naturalized Italians, many of whom came from families that emigrated in the 1880s in search of better lives. As for Williamson County, long before today's story takes place, this 444-square-mile area was the site of numerous outbreaks of violence that helped it achieve the nickname Bloody Williamson. When the U.S. coal mining industry was finally unionized, 100-hour workweeks went to 60-hour workweeks and then 40-hour workweeks. Within 20 years, miners' wages increased from $1.25 to $2 per day to $7 to $15 per day. Safety guidelines were also improved, leading to better lives for those who dug coal for a living. In the spring of 1922, a national strike was announced by the United Mine Workers Union, set to begin April 1st. This strike would include 600,000 miners from each coal-producing state in the U.S. The reason for the strike? Better pay. An article in a June 1922 Shelbina Torchlight newspaper out of Missouri included the following... Quote, when the strike began April 1st, the miners seemingly welcomed the occasion as a vacation period. The two months of the strike were spent by the men in repairing their homes, fishing, visiting, and some of the foreigners, mainly the Italians, declaring their intention of visiting relatives in Europe. End quote. The article went on to say that in mid-June, the first payments of strike benefits, $5, were paid to the men. One mine in the Heron area was the Southern Illinois Coal Company, run by a man named William J. Lester. At the onset of the strike, Lester made arrangements with the United Mine Workers of America, which allowed union men to mine coal as long as it wasn't shipped. This was a win-win for all. 
Lester would be able to accumulate a large amount of coal, ready to be shipped the moment the strike ended, and local union men would still be paid through the duration of the strike. Reports claim that by June, workers had dug nearly 60,000 tons of coal. Because of the strike, coal prices had increased dramatically, and an in-debt Lester realized he could make a profit of $250,000. For my friend Zach, who loves these conversions, that's more than $4.3 million in today's money. All Lester would have to do is fire the union workers and bring in non-union replacements, a.k.a. scabs. William J. Lester, the mine owner, had recently come to the Heron area from Cleveland, Ohio. Either he didn't realize how much organized labor dominated southern Illinois, or he just decided to risk it all in the name of profits. Lester fired the union men and contacted the Bertrand Employment Company at 501 West Madison Street in Chicago to send him approximately 50 replacement workers. Lester also hired guards from Chicago's Hargrave Secret Service Agency to watch over things. There has long been debate as to whether the men hired in Chicago knew why they were traveling downstate to work. C.W. King, 27, of Chicago, would later claim that the employment agency misrepresented the job, saying they were going, quote, to lay track 150 miles from Chicago, end quote. They would be common laborers and were to receive 45 cents an hour, a little less than $8 in today's money, with room and board included. On June 16th, using the new crew, Lester shipped out 16 freight cars of coal. Tempers among the local striking union workers began to rise. Another group of men from Chicago left by train late Tuesday, June 20th, sleeping along the way. When they woke Wednesday morning, they saw a sign outside their window that read, Centralia, Illinois, 252 miles from Chicago. It was then they knew something was up. On Wednesday morning, June 21st, 11 workers were met in Carbondale by a truck and a touring car from the Southern Mine. The touring car had two guards in it. About three miles out of town, the vehicles were ambushed, struck by a volley of bullets that came from the trees on either side of the road. C.W. King jumped from the truck and ran. Although shot, King hid in some weeds while other men jumped into the Crab Orchard Creek. That's still a thing. Union miners ran after them, yelling, There they are in the creek, while firing upon them. King was later brought to Holden Hospital in Carbondale, long since demolished, to recover. According to author Paul M. Angle in his 1952 book, Bloody Williamson, A Chapter in American Lawlessness... A telegram from John L. Lewis, president of the United Mine Workers of America, was published in local newspapers that read, quote, Representatives in our organization are justified in treating this crowd as an outlaw organization and in viewing its members in the same light as they do any other common strike breakers, end quote. On the afternoon of June 21st, union men from neighboring towns joined the Heron Union men, brandishing a variety of weapons, mainly guns they had liberated in the name of the union from local stores. They surrounded the mine. 
A gun battle ensued, reportedly lasting 18 hours, during which two Union men were killed instantly and a third was mortally wounded. The mob began destroying equipment on the site using hammers, shovels, and dynamite. Now, if you're wondering where the law was during all this, Sheriff Melvin Thaxton, himself a card-carrying union member who used to work in the coal mines, was conspicuously absent. In the middle of the night, many of the security guards that mine owner Lester had hired to protect workers snuck out and left the area. Lester, by then, had gone back to Chicago. From his hotel, he contacted union officials, promising to stop mining if the union would allow the remaining men safe passage home. On the morning of June 22nd, several hundred miners from the Union approached the entrance to the mine. Those inside the mine waved a white flag of surrender. The Union miners explained to the remaining non-Union workers that they would be escorted to a train station roughly five miles down the road and be safely sent on their way. The roughly 50 men from the mine, including workers and remaining guards, agreed to the rules of the truce and began marching toward the train stop. About a half mile north of the mine at an area called Crenshaw Crossing, the line of men stopped near a group of waiting men. One of the second group waved his revolver and yelled out, The only way to free the county of strikebreakers is to kill them all off and stop the breed. The mob grew more agitated and physical toward the unarmed men from the mine. The superintendent of the mine, a one-legged man with a peg leg named C.K. McDowell, was bloodied and limping, unable to walk anymore. Two men grabbed McDowell, pulling him away from the crowd and out of sight. Moments later, shots rang out. (coughs) McDowell, a one-legged man who posed no threat, had been murdered. According to reports, a car drove up, blocking the path of the men. In the driver's seat was Hugh Willis, the local United Mine Workers president. Willis told those leading the men to the train stop, quote, Listen, don't you go killing these fellows on a public highway. There are too many women and children around to do that. Take them over in the woods and give it to them. Kill all you can. We'll be right back. Are you a Caribbean American? Are you looking for a podcast that truly speaks to your culture and identity? Look no further than Carry On Friends, the ultimate destination for all things Caribbean American. Hosted by me, Carrie Ann. Dive deep into topics such as culture, heritage, and everyday life through the unique lens of the Caribbean American experience. You'll walk away feeling more connected to your roots. Follow and listen on Apple Podcasts so you'll never miss an episode of Carry On Friends, the Caribbean American experience. Your Caribbean American community awaits. The prisoners were marched into the woods near a barbed wire fence. Someone shouted, Let's see how fast you can run between here and Chicago, you damned gutter bums. (laughs) 
Shots exploded from rifles, shotguns, and pistols. Panic strike breakers bolted for the fence, desperately attempting to stave off the inevitable. Many of the defenseless men got caught in the barbs on the fence and were riddled with bullets. Others made it to the woods only to be hunted down and murdered. Six were caught and marched to the cemetery in Heron only to be murdered in front of cheering crowds. The first newspaper reporter to arrive at the scene in the woods was J.E. Hendricks of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Hendricks had been delayed an hour by a crowd in town that told him what was happening was the town's own business and was nothing for the newspapers. When that reporter made his way into the woods, he saw the carnage firsthand. One miner, according to an article in the Parsons, Kansas Daily Republican, boasted, quote, when they drag the lake, they will find 15 more, end quote. An AP correspondent who made his way to the scene found the mine on fire. A stopped freight train was also burning, while miners looted several cars of food and other supplies. One badly beaten man lying in the scorching sun, his shoulder mangled by a gunshot, Seemingly moments from death, he pleaded with the crowd to give him a drink. His request was met with laughter. When he asked again, begging, for God's sake, an attractive woman, roughly 24 years old with a baby in her arms, wearing a light flowered cloth dress, stepped forward, placing her foot on the man's wounded body and said, I'll see you in hell before you get any water. The correspondent later approached one of the striking miners with the following conversation taking place. How many were killed? The correspondent asked. No one killed at all. Why are the dead all over? The correspondent countered. We didn't kill them. They just dropped dead from fright when we surrounded their camp. The striker then asked whether the militia was coming here, adding, quote, if the militia comes down here, that will mean just so many more guns for us. The carnage was spread across 15 square miles. There were reports of men who were tied behind cars and dragged across the gravel. Four bodies were found at the foot of a tree. Above them was the body of a man who had been hanged. In a statement made to two representatives of the Associated Press, Colonel Samuel Hunter of the adjutant's office said that he did not believe that the local authorities were either able or inclined to handle the situation in Heron and that he recommended troops be sent there. No troops were ever requested. By the time the Heron Massacre ended, three union workers were dead and 20 non-union workers had been murdered. Many more lie wounded in hospitals. Some had escaped the fate of the others. Bodies were first brought to the morgue and piled in a heap in the corner. Later, they had their clothing removed before they were laid out in rows. A procession of men, women, and children filed through the morgue joking at the sight before them. One woman leading a young boy directed his attention to a corpse saying, quote, 
Take a look at what your papa did, kid. End quote. The coroner's jury wrote in their statement that the non-union men came to their deaths, quote, by gunshot wounds at the hands of parties to this jury unknown, end quote, as a result of the activities of the officials at the mine. That is some hardcore victim blaming. On the same day, the coroner's jury came back with their statement that 16 unidentified dead of Heron's labor war were buried in the Heron Potter's Field in graves dug by Union men. Four preachers, one from a Baptist church, a Presbyterian church, a Methodist church, and one from a Christian church, all spoke, then sang the hymn, Near My God to Thee. Seventy-five people were on hand to see the caskets, each bearing a stamped aluminum plate that read, At Rest, lowered into the ground, including Senator William J. Sneed, Heron Mayor George Pace, and Colonel Samuel Hunter. The marker at the grave's head simply read, Died June 22, 1922. According to one news report, as the preachers spoke and prayed, miners at the service shifted, tired from digging in the sun, but there were no signs of disrespect. There were also, as many articles pointed out, no tears shed for the dead. On June 26th, four days after the bloody attacks, there was word that the 12 wounded non-union survivors recuperating in the Heron Hospital might be in danger of their lives. One Heron businessman was heard commenting, quote, Dead men tell no tales, and some of those wounded men know too much for the safety of members of the mob, end quote. One non-union worker, Howard Hoffman, who lived at 659 Grace Street in Chicago before accepting the job at the mine, feared continued violence if he and others were forced to leave the hospital. Hoffman died from his injuries while still under hospital care. In his dying statement, he warned hospital authorities that none of the wounded would ever leave Williamson County alive. Hoffman was one of six men tied together and shot down in the cemetery near the mine. Three died instantly. Hoffman played dead. A member of the mob advanced and shot him in the back, rolling Hoffman over so that he was face up. Several men proceeded to stomp on Hoffman's chest. One man then cut his throat. One of the other men who died before his name was recorded told a similar story of lying wounded while a member of the mob pulled his head back while another cut his throat. While the town's lawman, Sheriff Melvin Thaxton, claimed a full investigation would occur, Newspapers such as the Chicago Tribune pointed out Thaxton was running for office as county treasurer, and with the labor vote strong in Williamson County, many felt he would not follow through. Not all of the townsfolk were part of or supporters of the violent mob. Some local farmers who feared their testimony in the Heron Massacre trial was, quote, Brewing a spirit of hostility among the miners, and quote, formed a secret society to guard their families from repercussions. Quote, I have gone off by myself and cried like a baby because I had to tell the truth, one farmer confessed, according to an investigator. 
I have no fear for my life, but I'd rather lose my farm than place my wife and little children in the path of a mob, the farmer said. One newspaper editorial read, Heron, Illinois should be ostracized, shut off from all communication with the outside world, and the people there left to soak in the blood they have spilled. President Warren G. Harding called the event a, quote, shocking crime, barbarity, butchery, rot, and madness. 214 indictments were eventually handed down, including 44 for murder, 58 for conspiracy to commit murder, 54 for assault to murder, and 58 for conspiracy and rioting. Quote, the atrocities and cruelties of the murderers are beyond the power of words to describe, a report on the incident asserted. A mob is always cowardly, but the savagery of this mob in its relentless brutality is almost unbelievable. The indignities heaped upon the dead did not end until their bodies were interred in unknown graves. End quote. Two trials were eventually held, but no one was ever convicted of the massacre in Heron in June 1922. An official statement from the Attorney General's office declared that, quote, the prosecution is reluctantly obliged to admit justice cannot be obtained in Williamson County. No impartial jury can be obtained to try the men responsible. Witnesses, reliable and trustworthy, at great risk of personal violence, have courageously testified to what they beheld on that fatal day, only to be impeached by witnesses who plainly were interested in the defense and who clearly were testifying falsely." End quote. Within four months of the Heron Massacre, five of the bodies that had been buried in the potter's field were claimed by relatives and disinterred. On October 3, 1922, Ignatz Kubinets, who had been injured in the massacre and had been at the hospital, died of his wounds and was buried in the potter's field. William J. Lester, the mine owner whose greed lit the match of the Heron powder keg, was able to sell his mine to the Union at a profit to avoid lawsuits. Lester followed his Heron fiasco with a number of failed mining projects. He eventually established a practice as a consulting engineer in Indiana before dying in 1935. I could find no record of him ever showing regret for his decisions. In 2009, Scott Duty, then an Illinois radio host and eventually an author of a book about the Heron Massacre, heard about the Heron Massacre and forgotten paupers' graves. Doing some research on his own, Duty found one victim was likely Antonio Molkovich, a decorated World War I veteran. Duty later determined four other men killed were also veterans. Duty enlisted a geologist from Eastern Illinois University, a forensic anthropologist, and retired Washington County Sheriff and former coal miner 
John Foster to discover the truth behind the burials. Judy claims he was threatened with arrest by then Heron Mayor Vic Ritter. The dispute went to court with the archaeology team prevailing once the city halted the dig and blocked access to cemetery records. In November of 2013, after a few failed attempts to locate the bodies of the victims, the team, aided by a backhoe from the city, found the end of a wooden burial vault that matched those that records claimed were used for the men killed in the massacre. The archaeological team also discovered the graves of those more recently laid to rest on top of some of the massacre victims' graves. In their effort to forget their bloody past, it would appear the city of Heron forgot where those sins were buried. In 2015, six years after the process to unearth the forgotten victims of the Heron massacre had begun, the excavation was completed. Many of the names formerly unknown were discovered and placed on a monument in the cemetery in June of 1915. In addition to Chicago, the dead came from Boston, Manhattan and Brooklyn in New York, Russia and Slovakia. Among those named on the monument is Robert Anderson, a mine guard who was a 25-year-old World War I veteran from Sparta, Michigan. Anderson, along with the other veterans buried in Heron, survived the horrors of World War I, only to be killed here, much closer to home, by a vengeful mob. Thanks for listening to today's episode about the Heron Coal Massacre of 1922. This episode was researched, written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. If you have questions about anything covered today, anything to add, or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. Want to support the podcast? Check out the Buy Me a Coffee link in the show's notes where you can help offset production expenses for the cost of a cup of coffee. If you do, I'll even thank you by name in an upcoming episode. That amazing art for the podcast you see used on the Chicago History Podcast social media pages? That was created by the inimitable John K. Schneider. If you need art for your project, he's your dude. John can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.